This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. So many kids who think I can't do math, it's not that they can't do math, they can't do math the way it was given to them because it was defined in a very limited way and it when they're given a chance to talk and to ask questions and to be curious and to, and to test and experiment and to fail and to learn and to find different pathways to get to the, the solution, then that opens up their thinking about, I can do this. And they begin to not learn math, but they begin to think like mathematicians think. I'm Josh Rapoon, and this is the What School Could Be podcast. Today, I welcome back to the show Dr. Mark Hines, the director of Kupuho Academy and the founder of the Mid-Pacific Explorer Program at Mid-Pacific Institute in Honolulu, Hawaii. To introduce Dr. Hines, I'm going to read a series of testimonials submitted by some of Mark's brilliant colleagues in education. What these folks say will tell you why I wanted him back on the show. Deanna Dolier writes... Whether surrounded by a group of students, colleagues, or friends, Mark's unwavering passion for teaching and the pursuit of deeper learning are unmatched. His enthusiasm and love of learning are sublimely infectious, compelling those around him to work for actionable change. Simply put, Mark is a treasure in Hawaii's education community. Sophie Halliday writes, Mark is a -a one-of-a-kind guy. He's brilliant deep and incisive in his thinking, an expert practitioner of deeper learning principles, and fierce proponent of student-centered learning. But what I love about him most is his kindness and generosity. He listens actively and thoughtfully and responds always with gentleness and kindness, and he freely and generously offers care and support to friends and strangers alike. He's the first to recognize and celebrate a colleague's accomplishments, yet is humble and quiet about his myriad achievements and accolades. It's a pleasure and privilege to call Mark my friend and colleague. Dr. Phil Bossert notes, Dr. Mark Hines is the epitome of the project-based learning enabler, creating for each student the learning environment and educational challenges that will optimize the knowledge, skills, and passion of that student's educational experience. This is true whether the student is a K-12 student, a teacher, an administrator, or a parent. He can detect the potential for learning in a person and convert that potential to understanding. And finally, Lee Fitzgerald writes, Even at his mature vintage, Mark epitomizes our vision of an engaged learner. He devours books, podcasts, articles, and opportunities to engage with colleagues and students. He then immediately and with childlike excitement applies his new knowledge to his work to the ultimate benefit of the students, teachers, administrators, and friends that he interacts with daily. To me, Mark is forever young, and he approaches each day with an inquiry mindset, open heart, and genuine curiosity about the people and world surrounding him. To quote my mentor, fictitious Dylan High, Panthers coach Eric Taylor, quote, clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. This is Mark. And now, here's my conversation with Dr. Mark Hines. (laughs) 
Dr. Mark Hines, welcome back to the What's Cool Could Be podcast. It's really wonderful to be here with you today, Josh. So Mark, I suspect our listeners have places that they call special, you know, some trail up a mountain in Montana, national park in Utah, library in Chicago, a beach on Maui, etc. So given your Twitter account's banner photo is you paddling in a six-man canoe off of East Oahu, I'm going to, and I apologize, put you in an impossible position here. So Mark, you have one full day left in your life and you can make one choice about what to do. So door number one is your kitchen where you love to cook. Door number two is your classroom where you love to teach. Door number three leads to a canoe out on the ocean and five other humans paddling with you in the bright sunshine. And door number four takes you back in time to playing the saxophone in a jazz band you joined in a Massachusetts middle school. Which door, Mark? You got one day left and one choice. Which door? Ah, isn't that the challenge of life is really trying to define <laughs> yourself through the things we choose to do. How we spend our time is where our values reside, Absolutely. Right? But I think if, if I were to think about in my last day, what has the most meaning for me? You know, I've spent 40 years in the classroom. Um, that has given my life purpose and made everything else possible. And so I think the choice of being with students, learners in, in the space that's defined who I have been for my life is the place I would have to be. Mm. So Mark, when you when you get up in the morning and you have your coffee and you get in your car and you, you head towards school, I wonder if you can describe the feeling that you have as you think about what you just said about being with students during the day and even being with adult learners as well who are part of the you know, the process of helping students become learners themselves. What does that feel like to you? You know, over my time of, of teaching, it's evolved. I think, you know, when you're a young teacher, you're, you're struggling with, do I feel ready? What might happen today? I remember as an early teacher coming in and spending 10, 15 hours on a weekend setting up the entire week's worth of work to make sure everything worked. You know, that sort of type A obsessive, making sure all the pathways were covered. But as I think about it now, I think about the opportunity it has for me to find joy with my students or with the faculty I have the privilege to work with, mm -hmm. to explore what makes them motivated to learn. And so it's more of an anticipatory set where I, I know what's planned. And so the opportunity to engage and excite the folks I've been blessed to work with, that's usually what's on my mind. And this tingling, spidey sense of excitement about you know, what might happen today that will make a difference for the humans I'm working with that day. Mm. Yeah, that's that's the thing that I was thinking about is that back in the beginning when I first started teaching in the in the 90s, early 90s, I, I was also the type A and I had every single day scripted out practically to the minute. Oh my God, when I look back on that. But later, when I had released myself from that process as an educator, I remember the feeling of heading to school with much more that, that feeling of anticipation because you'd opened yourself or I'd opened myself up to other possibilities that could happen, other contingencies in the moment, right? All of a sudden things feel a little bit different because there's 
there's something in the air that just feels like it could go left or right or straight or up or down. You're just not so sure, right? Right. And, and you know, to be clear, you know, when we're learning to become a master teachers, which we all get to in our time, we're spending so much time in the minutia. We worry about the details because we haven't made those things automatic. You know, there's the old joke about teachers have eyes in the back of their head. Yeah. Well, not novice teachers because they're always trying to figure out what's going on in their room. But as we evolve into a more expert kind of understanding of how classroom plays out, how learning looks when we set the context for our environment, then we can see things from the 10,000 foot level. And so we anticipate and we read the room and we can sense when things change. And that makes it, you know, it's, it's part of the process to support teachers, right? Is helping them move from the stress it takes to sort of just manage all of the things that are the content, the behaviors, the, the timing, the sequence, and to get to a point where those things fall away and they've sort of automated the normal things that we start off with. Yeah. And then really dive into the reason we're there, which is to engage and to, to, to try and, and move a day forward so that our learners walk away with a productive and positive experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's great, Mark. So listen, I read an article from 2007 that describes Mid-Pacific Institute taking the boys state championship in paddling. So I want to dip back into door number three for a minute here. You were the boys coach then and have been for a long, long time. Where does paddling fit in the arc of Mark Hines' life? Like what, what does it mean to coach? And I mean anything, like what is the essence of coaching for you? I was not a athlete when I was in school, uh, my own schooling, uh, you know, K-16. I was a musician and so I don't come to sports and athletics with experience of what I think coaching looked like. And so back in 1987, when I started coaching high school students and younger, I brought to it my own experience of what it meant to be a learner. I thought about it from a teacher's perspective, not from, you know, not winning and losing, but about learning and growing. And Something changed in me in doing this that was really powerful because in coaching, it's not you against your athletes. It's preparing as a group for a performance. And, mm. and you mentioned I was a musician in, in my high school years, and it was the same experience. It was, you know, it, it wasn't my band director that I was competing against. I was trying to work collectively with a group to produce a performance that reflected my best effort. And so what coaching did for me was it changed the way I was as a classroom teacher because the more I started to realize my athletes come every day wanting to do this, how can I create a classroom environment in which the goal isn't for me to tell my students what to do and they're needing me to always mitigate, to, to be the person in the trenches telling them what to do every minute. It was to create you know, this autonomy in them so that they would know how to perform on their own because we were going to do something with our learning that was a performance or was some kind of event. And so it started to really change the way I looked at teaching and learning because the best coaching I was doing was changing the way I was working in my classroom with my learners because I was 
finding that to be the goal, to, to have it be, we're working together for a goal outside of this. And that changes the relationship. It changes who's in charge. When I put my athletes on the field, I can't coach them anymore. They have to do it themselves out there. And when I walk away from my classroom, I want to feel that my learners are able to move on and do it without me there as well. Yeah, that's great, Mark. I, I also started coaching at the same time that I started teaching. And I recall that the residual effect of coaching, although it took some years to kind of kick in, was exactly as you described. I mean, later in my teaching career, I began to realize that I was coming in sort of as that person who would talk to the to the players before they went out on the field, but ultimately they were the ones who played the game. And right. that was that was a really great feeling. It was almost like a feeling of liberation. I think that you kind of describe it that way as well. That's awesome. I love the word liberation. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, yeah. So Mark, you told me a great story about arriving late to class one day and your school's president and high school principal were waiting for you. <laughs> and in the moment, you thought the worst was about to happen. So what is that story, Mark, which you said is literally cemented in your brain? Oh, this was probably in the early 90s when I maybe four or five years into my adjusting my practice around the coaching philosophy versus the teaching philosophy. And it was a course in electronics. And so the students there were really engaged in building, I can't remember if we were building amplifiers or some kind of circuit bridges. But I had been having a conversation with a colleague or something and showed up to my class more than five minutes late. And when I got there, the president of the school and, and the principal were there at the door with their arms sort of folded. And I thought, <laughs> oh, I'm screwed. And, and they looked at me and said, how do you do it? And I said, what? And they said, well, we were here waiting to talk to you and your students showed up and they just walked, walked by us, waved, went into the classroom, started pulling out equipment and just got to work. They didn't need you here to get started. They knew what they were doing. They saw us here. They didn't worry about us. And my blood pressure went from about you know 300 over 200 and started to come back down. <laughs> because, you know, the students knew when they came to class what the goal was. And we were in the middle of a project where they were building something. And so they didn't need me to tell them to get started because they had a sense of purpose around their work. And that moment is stuck in my mind because... At that moment, it defined for me what it means to really teach and lead students, which is not for them to be dependent on me, much like a coach, right, where they have to keep looking at me to tell them what to do. Right. It's giving them the context of what we're working on together and then giving them permission, autonomy, enough structure, but enough openness so that they know the rules of the game and they play within the rules. And so... It was a moment that could have defined my career in an opposite way, but fortunately, it, yeah. my students rose to that and talked to them after, and they all laughed and said, yeah, we saw them there, but we knew you were late for something. We just knew what we had to do, so we just got to work. Oh. And it was such a mature and powerful response, right? Because we, we ultimately come to education believing that we can make a difference in the lives of these learners that we have in front of us. And... Sometimes it's doing less, not more, that opens up that possibility so that they believe they can be in charge of their own learning. Yeah, that's, that's such a cool story, Mark. And I, I have one that's kind of similar. Back in the day when 
this thing called Skype showed up for people. And I remember kind of marveling at the idea that, that there was a way that you could, you know, call into people and it would be a video call. And at the same time, I was at La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls and I was asked to teach a, an open course that I could just construct myself. And so I did sort of a history of knowledge course and I made the decision, and I, I swear I never told the admin about this ever, that I would teach it via Skype. So I had the students constructing an online library in my classroom, but I was only calling in once a session from the other side of campus. And so they were sort of like a client of mine. They were building something. And wow. at, at first I thought, oh boy, you know, so my principal's going to walk by and see total chaos and where's Josh and all that. Never happened. They went to work and they built this library and I made my calls once a class session. There's something so cool about that, you know? And I had to think to myself, Mark, like, what am I gonna do for this hour? Yeah. You know, I'm only gonna talk to them for about 10 minutes. Like, what am I gonna do for this hour? And that's a really trippy feeling, right? You know, it's interesting. You point out something there that's also, I think, near and dear to my heart these days as I work with teachers around the state, around the world, is we've built schools that imply that learning and teaching looks one way. You know, yeah. a curriculum is one kind of way. And, and, you know, a school or a grade or a textbook implies this is the way. And what you are, are giving light to there is most teachers instinctively have a good sense of for their students at the point where they are in their career, where the students are, because they know them best in the community they're in, class, school, local community, the world community, that there are many ways to get to the outcome. And in truth, we learn best when that's situated in the place we're at at that moment. And so yeah. one of the challenges is honoring the fact that learning is not linear. It's not uh, one kind of modality. It's not at the same kind of pace for every kid or every teacher. And so this idea that providing teachers rich learning experiences so that they know how to design for the moment instead of just delivering curriculum as if it's some kind of recipe that as long as you follow these steps, your kids will get to the end yeah. is one of the real challenges and opportunities I think we now have with how we understand how kids learn. Yeah, that's great. So Mark, so kind of along the same lines, I asked you to provide me with the names of books that have influenced you over the years. And I know that was an impossible question because you are quite a reader, but you listed Joe Bowler's Limitless Mind and anything by Carl Sagan, among other works. And in a way, I see these two authors as connected because they both embrace the concept of a limitless mind, one related to the exploration of space, the other related to the exploration of math. So I wonder, Mark, what makes kids most likely to succeed is having a limitless mind, but where? what does that mean exactly? Like you have a limitless mind, Mark, but how did you get it? Where did you find it? It wasn't a target, I know. Like, how does that happen? I believe from experience, from reading, from observation, that 
all learners have an innate curiosity about the world. That's me. That's every teacher I have the opportunity and blessing to work with, and every student that is has been in my class. And the the real research behind Limitless Mind is is sort of based on Carol Dweck's work uh, work on mindset yeah. that. We, we think of ourselves as sometimes and as an education, a lot of damaged souls I've seen over the years from students that I've met, from friends, kids who I meet, from adults that I work with who have got the sense that I can't do this. And the idea of limitless mind is that everyone has the ability to learn just about anything. It doesn't mean that they're going to become you know, a rocket scientist, although they could be. But it means that they can learn it. But the challenge we have is we need to provide the pathway and honor the natural, the innate curiosity that learners have at all ages to allow them to explore, to elaborate, to work at the pace that they're at, to answer the questions that they have most prominent in their mind, to honor those so that they can open up the ability for them to do the things that experts get to, which is to experiment, to try, to fail, to try again, to find a different way to do it, to apply the information that's right for them at that moment. And so the idea of limitless mind is this recognition that the human mind has potential through our whole lives to keep learning, only when we provide it the opportunities to expand and not limit by saying there's only one way to do this. There's only one time to do this. There's only one process by which you will be judged if you can learn this or not. Hmm. And so when we do those things, we restrict what already is part of the innate nature of you know, what we've learned in cognitive psychology, that, that learning is complex and it involves experience and interaction. And so Bowler's work has shown that so many kids who think I can't do math, it's not that they can't do math. They can't do math the way it was given to them because it was defined in a very limited way. And it, when they're given a chance to talk and to ask questions and to be curious and to, and to test and experiment and to fail and to learn and to find different pathways to get to the, the solution, then that opens up they're thinking about, I can do this. And they begin to not learn math, but they begin to think like mathematicians think. And that's the, the flip, right? We're not trying to have kids learn math. We really want kids to think of themselves as being mathematicians. Mm. We don't want kids to learn to write. We want kids to think of themselves as writers. And I know that's, that seems like a nuanced line because you can say, well, they have to learn to write before they become writers. But that's this idea of Bloom's taxonomy that you have to do all the memorization stuff before you can apply the information. And there, that's really a misunderstood principle that you can, it's like a spiraling. You can continue to add layers to the complexity of someone doing the field of study they're in, in the context and at the level they're at, without beating them to death, like teaching a kid how to ride a bicycle, you wouldn't spend three years showing them how to use the pedals and what the gears do and here's what the brakes do. You would give them a little bit, have them try it, debrief, learn a little bit, give them feedback, go back and do it again. That's the way learning looks in the real world. Mm -hmm. So when we open up the limitless mind, we're providing that same process to create 
successively more rich layers of experience and questions and answers and testing and, and, and failing and learning from that and then adding a new layer as they go forward. Where were you, Mark, in the arc of your professional teaching career when Carol Dweck's work arrived on the scene? Do you remember that? Oh, I mean, I'm, in my mind, it was probably around 2009, 2010. I can't remember when, when the book came out. I know as we were in the process of this Schools of the Future initiative, mm-hmm. which you and I have been involved with and touched in, in many places in, in the work we've done, that the reading around, you know, what are the ways in which we're learning that, how schools can operate, you know, what schools can be, what learning can be, maybe another way to think of it, started to push us to look at what are, what are some of the things that we're learning from that are helping. And, you know, it's interesting. I think back then that was in the early days of TED Talks being put online. Yes. And so the, I think Carol Dweck had one of those, one of those early TED Talks as well as Sir Ken Robinson. Mm-hmm. And so those things pushed us to think about, you know, a different way of looking at what learning can be for students, not just in school, but throughout their lives, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know, Mark, before we go to break, I'll just share that my moment riding a bike is is cemented, to use your word, in my mind very deeply. My One of my older brothers put me on a bike. He said, here are the pedals, and you're going to pedal. And he gave me a shove, and off I went. And across the driveway, I pedaled really hard and went straight into a bougainvillea bush, which is filled with thorns. And and that was my first experience riding a bike, you know? I bet you can remember every smell, sight, Absolutely. sensation of what that was like. That's the way we learn, right? Through experience. Absolutely. And I just knew that as I was going to be riding a bike going forward, it was best not to go into the bougainvillea bush. So you have to figure out how to do that, you know? Yeah. 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 Those are good memories. So everybody... Stay with us. We will be right back with more questions for Dr. Mark Hines. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be?, As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Everyone, we are back with Dr. Mark Hines, the founder of Mid-Pacific Institute's MPX program, and now the director of Kupuho Academy, which delivers deeper learning professional development to public, charter, and independent schools, both in Hawaii and around the world. So Mark, I wanna ask you a series of rapid fire questions based on some thoughts you shared with me about your philosophy of education. 
So let's have you provide rapid fire or brief responses to each. Okay. So sure. Here we go. Number one, Mark, why let students have more choice over classes they take and give permission to educators to teach what they like or are passionate about? I'm going to give you the answer in the form of a story. When we started MPX, the first group of students back in 2011, one of the students looked at me, his name was Nate, and he said, you know, Heinz, this is all good what you're designing for us, these projects, but if you let us do the things we wanted to learn and just gave us feedback, we can get to all the stuff you want us to teach and we'd have a lot more fun doing it. And here I had thought about I had designed this intentional project. We were building catapults. We were going to launch things and measure and look at the mathematics and the engineering and the physics of motion. And this student in at 14 years old captured the essence around that question about choice because he recognized, and granted, he was uh, at a level of understanding of his own learning that he was empowered enough. He now has his PhD in physics and and, and has moved on in his life in, in a powerful way. And he's taken the things that he loves. But in that statement from him, if you just let us learn the way and the things we wanted, we'd get there faster than you. That kind of encapsulates it for me, that the more we can capture what real learning is like when kids are curious, when they just do things because they find them interesting and they'll kick the tires and they'll try it and see what it's like, that's when we make the move on really students. And for educators, the same thing? Absolutely. You know, that there's nothing clearer when you walk in a classroom, whether a teacher loves what they're doing or not. And students know that right away. Students read culture, read adults in ways that we sometimes just act like we're delivering curriculum and we don't notice that the students are reading. Is this teacher even passionate about this topic? So the more we give teachers permission to work within the things that get them excited, the more our students pick up on that because now they don't see us as a deliverer of content. They see us as an expert or a, or a passionate um, advocate for the information that they're sharing, whether it's about writing or history or art or whatever. Mm. So Mark, why are textbooks problematic for teaching and learning? You know, there was research done by Philip Sadler at Harvard back in the, I think it was in the 90s, that looked at learning with textbooks and learning without textbooks. This was specifically in physics classrooms. And what they found was, if you took away the textbook, the students learn more, which was completely confounding. But what they deduced out of that was, students spend so much time underlining and memorizing the words in a textbook, they never really figure out for what. Mm. And so textbooks are problematic when they're used as the single source of information. In other words, as long as you memorize the stuff that's in here, then you'll know the field. What textbooks can do is they can provide the context for it. My colleague Bob McIntosh talked about when the first time he had to teach mathematics in the 80s, he got every textbook from every vendor, you know, they, they'll send you a, a preview copy, mm -hmm. and he put it on his shelf and he told his student, take any of these and learn from them and use them as resources mm -hmm. to construct your learning. In other words, the textbook is not the learning. The textbook is a means to get to the learning. And so it's fine to use them when they are one of the ways in which students are coming to understand the concepts, the skills, the thinking routines that are part of that discipline. Mm. So Mark, why banish grades or at the very least 
think very seriously about whether or not grades are the right tool to use? Oh, it's a, that, that has to be a rapid fire question. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm very sorry. <laughs> so the short answer is, I think, there, you know, there's, there's so much interesting research that's been done about what motivates students to learn. So uh, the quick example is, if I put a letter on or a letter grade on a writing sample, that doesn't tell the student anything about how to get better. Mm-hmm. And the students become just desirous of getting the grade, but they don't understand what it takes to get there. In other words, the, the grade is the summative. It's the thing at the end, and that's the least important thing in learning. What the research shows is when students aren't given a grade, but instead are given feedback, when they're given their next steps they need to work on, when they understand, here's what you did well, and now here are some things to push yourself to even understand this better. There's no grade associated with that. The students are more likely to take that feedback. They'll understand where it fits because they're not getting that assessment that's telling them you're a B and they can decide if that's good enough for them. What they're being told all the time is if you want to get better at this, this is the next thing for you to work on. And so when we take away grades, then that happens. Now, I know that presents all kinds of challenges for schools who need to have transcripts. That's why movement towards mastery, mm-hmm. competencies. So we, we, you know, our elementary school in Mid-Pacific is, has a continuum of learning and the students are given no grades and our middle school has moved there as well. Mm-hmm. High school is a bit trickier because colleges still want to see a transcript. And so we're working to, to figure out how to do that in a way that captures the learning and and colleges and career are still able to decode what that means and in, in what they've got. Mm-hmm. But instead of saying a grade, we identify what the learning needs to look like. And we just, you know, deliberately give students very intentional feedback about here's where you're at. Here's what you need to do next. That's the power that when you take away grades can happen. Mm. So Mark, why require that everything kids learn be useful in some way? Wow, what a great question. <laughs> Just comes straight from your philosophy of education. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that presents a problem because someone says, well, are kids going to really care what the capitals of the 50 states are? Yeah, It's like, is that useful information? It isn't by itself. So the challenge for a teacher, I'm going to retool your question, okay. is how... Can I make the, the, the content, the, the, the learning outcomes that I need to do in my classroom useful? In other words, there's a reason why we have requirements of mathematical thinking, of writing, of communication, of understanding history, people in context, appreciation of art. All those things we know enrich lives when students leave us. So the the job of education isn't to say, well, let's just let kids learn whatever they want to learn. I mean, I think you could argue if we were to set the context right, they would learn everything they need to learn because they're curious by nature. Mm -hmm. But since we're not in that world quite yet, then the the in-between step is to create purpose for the learning that needs to happen. And that's where strategies like place-based learning and inquiry and project-based learning, you know, that big umbrella of deeper learning, Mm -hmm. when we give students a reason, a purpose for learning, then they'll learn it. So I think useful to me means that we give purpose for the learning and then it becomes useful for the students to grapple with it, to try and understand it and to apply that information. Mm -hmm. So Mark, why should we entertain or at least think very deeply about the concept of the one-room schoolhouse where learners of all ages learn together? 
Ah, it's a great question. And I, I just read this wonderful blog post from Edna Hussey, who's our uh, elementary principal, and she was a guest on your show. And she was talking about our engineering week work that happened just last week and how there were high school students and middle school students and elementary students all in a room together learning and sharing what they know and building on each other's ideas. So that was a classic example of a one uh, where we're a large school, we're over 1,400 students, and yet our school became much more like a one-room schoolhouse in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's a lot going on there that makes a one-room schoolhouse powerful. The fact that we in schools have this idea that when you're, you know, 14 years old, you should know all this information is, is crazy because we know not everyone learns at the same rate and some kids have different dispositions. And so when we're in a one room schoolhouse, we're constantly spiraling, remediating, personalizing, differentiating. We're giving air to the fact that everyone's learning where they're at right now. And we're not just saying all the 14 year olds in one room together and all just doing one kind of learning for 45 minutes and then move on to something else. But there's something even more powerful about the one room schoolhouse because it implies that we're learning together. In other words, kids move through schools and they sort of, they leave behind both the adults and the sense of what it was like to be five or 10 or 14 years old. Mm-hmm. And in one one room schoolhouse, we create a community of the spectrum of learners, the developmental stages they're in. And we build an appreciation of what learning looks like across the grade levels. So that one room schoolhouse has value because it shows what the community that's learning is doing all the time. And there's power in that. Mm-hmm. This is great, Mark. Two more of these rapid-fire questions. Sure. Why include families in the daily life and activities of school? Oh, God, what a wonderful question. (laughs) You know, when I was a young teacher, I remember a teacher pulling me aside and saying, listen, the goal is keep the families out of your life. Like, just whatever you do, try to not connect to them because they're just going to get in the way of you trying to do what you need to do in your classroom. Some of the, you know, we, we all can probably remember some terrible advice we got as young teachers. And it took me probably 10 years to undo the scars of that. Some of that came from the coaching because the parents were more integrally involved because they showed up at the games, right? They were there and you could talk to them after and we could talk about their child and how they were doing. So if you think about it, our families are, are where our kids spend most of their time. They know their kid best. And when we, work with families, we recognize that learning isn't something that happens in a, you know, a building in a place away from the home from eight to three. And then that's completely disconnected from that. And then they leave that we're recognizing that learning is not just happening in school, but it's happening at home. It's happening when the kids are in their activities, whether it's clubs or religious activities or sports or whatever they're doing. And so when we bring families into schools and invite them to be part of the conversation, uh, of understanding the ways that we're doing things in and out of school, that we are giving a more full experience both to the learners and their families so that everything is more tied to context. And and the families are just a small part of the larger community they're in, right? Because the, the students are working or they're in clubs or they're going out with their friends on a weekend and going surfing. And in all those places, you want to have a recognition that learning doesn't end 
when the bell rings or when the when that school day ends at three o'clock because that's not the way the brain works. It's always actively processing. So families know their kids best in that way. Yeah, Mark, and I've I've had multiple conversations, interviews that turned into episodes with educators who work in blended learning programs. And some of that conversation has been around parents as learning coaches, which has been fantastic. Yeah, Shiloh, who was on a couple of weeks ago with you, talked at length about she's you know, that whole goal of how do you bring the families into the work and, and make them coaches along with their, you know, with the teachers, right? Right. And Florence Scott on Kauai and Heather Belosis on Maui, all, all the same thing. So, yeah. So, Mark, one more. This one, you know, absolutely, it's not a rapid fire, but I just got to go for it, okay? It, it comes right out of your philosophy of education. Should so. I be worried about what we're about to hear? <laughs> okay, so... So finally, let's say, Mark, our legislature pulls off a miracle next week and raises the pay of teachers to fully above the cost of living and way above the rate of inflation. I mean, salaries comparable to lawyers and dentists and doctors. And there's this crazy moment where the whole room and the whole world or the whole state goes silent for a second and one person, not you, raises her hand and says, now what? And then you raise your hand and you get to respond. Now what, Mark? Teachers do amazing work. You know, there's a, a psychologist who works with schools, Rob Evans, you might be familiar with him. Mm-hmm. And I remember he, teachers and priests are people who think that they can heal the sick and raise the dead. You know, there's sort of this, teachers don't go into their profession as a job. They go into it to try and save the world, right? We're, we're doing this because we have a passion for making a difference. And so pay isn't the only answer to improve the profession. However, from a standpoint of taking care of the finances of just living in the world, the fact that teachers in the level of education that they have and the time commitment it takes to do the job, that without recognizing that the pay needs to be something that at least makes it possible so teachers don't have to work a second job. Josh, I delivered pizza for five years when I was a young teacher. I worked in a fast food restaurant at nights because that was the only way when I was a young teacher to make ends meet. And we shouldn't have someone who's a professional who's charged and we give them the the permission to be in the lives of adolescents to have to figure out how they can afford to pay the bills by figuring out they have to make more money somewhere else because it's just draining in so many ways from the place where they want to be so that they can do the work on the behalf of their students. Mm-hmm. However, once we do that, you know, a, a wonderful book that Posse Salberg, who's, you know, from Finland and has looked at the, uh, uh, you know, kind of report on the Finnish education system. And it, it talks about the teacher profession in Finland. And he makes the case that if we don't build better professionalism in teachers' ranks, in other words, if we don't think of them as content delivery experts, assembly line people, you just teach them how to do this, 
and then they just deliver it with fidelity and they don't, everyone does the same thing every day. In Finland, it's a very different model. They believe teachers can and should have autonomy. They do very little testing. They do mostly work with building community and, and having teachers mentor each other and build an understanding of what good classroom teaching and learning look like in conversation. And then every school takes that as their mission to be excellent in their own way. That the pay is going to be important because without it, you can't get to those other things. But I do think that we need to also back up and ask, how do we make schools human? How do we make them a place where teachers want to go every day because it's enriching, not just because they want to make a difference, but because the culture of the school allows them to follow their passion in a way in which they're honored for their commitment to make a difference in the lives of kids. Mm. So pay, yes, and yeah. and a rethinking of what it means to be a professional in this field to support teachers in a more full way. Yeah, that's great, Mark. So thank you for indulging me in that rapid fire section. I'm going to squeeze in one more question. It's not one of the rapid fire ones. But I'm going to squeeze in one more before we go to our second break, Mark. So to sure. bring to bring everything you've just talked about home for our listeners, over the years, you have been what I call, quote, an educator who writes, which is awesome. You have written a blog for many, many years. And there's one post in particular I want to focus on for a minute. It's titled, Now We're Cooking, Really? And you posted it in January of 2017, five years ago. So what was that blog about and why bring cooking to your students in the MPX program? When we started MPX, which is a project-based integrated learning approach in our ninth and 10th grade program in Mid-Pacific, students can choose to come into that work because we believe in choice and students, we want to give them pathways. We started really asking ourselves, what are the things that we can give students in experience that would be rewarding? And I have been a food nerd for a long time. I love the science of cooking. I read about it. I love experimenting in the kitchen and trying things and understanding how it works. And so I, I was exploring with some friends about like, what kind of work might we do with our students? And I've said, you know, for years, I've always wanted to bring cooking into my classroom and we have this wonderful community partner I'm going to do a shout out to right now, Dan Leung, who's over at Kapiolani Community College, who works within their culinary arts program. And he said, just, just design it then. And my colleague, Greg Kaneko, who is in the 10th grade, had already done some work with Dan, where they had had like a aquaponics and food growing challenge for students. So they weren't focused on the cooking part as much as they were focused on the biology of sustainability and local plants and growing things locally to produce food, which is a big issue in Hawaii, right? Food sustainability and security. Mm -hmm. So that started me thinking about what would the science of it look like? So with Dan's help, we unpacked what the, the just the amazing amount of science that can be done within cooking, chemistry, thermodynamics, heat transfer, physics, you know, pots and pans, aluminum, copper, steel, you know, there's just, it's, it's an endless number of things that go into what makes cooking work and the way it cuts across cultures. Um, and so my humanities co-teacher and I started really exploring what a cooking 
exploration would look like. And we ended up with this long unit where the students be not, again, think about what we've talked about in this hour, right? Mm -hmm. It's not to teach math. It's not to teach science. It's to create a mindset in students that they are the scientists. And so the work of doing cooking in my classroom became the work of making my food students think of themselves as food scientists. Mm -hmm. They needed to understand what proteins do when you put them under heat. They needed to understand what temperature does to solutions when they become warmer and, and what's going on at the atomic level, what's happening at the, at the genetic level or the cell level of materials, cell walls in plants and proteins in, in, in animals. So it just provided this really rich opportunity. I mean, you could spend it in, I mean, obviously there's careers in food science and so you don't have to do it in just a six-week unit of exploration, but it opens the door to mm -hmm. some really fascinating investigations of food, culture, science, identity, giving students ownership. You know, one of the most wonderful moments in that was a knife workshop where we had <laughs> 24 students, all with cutting boards and kitchen knives, chef knives, you know, the, the real workhorse of a, of a professional kitchen, mm -hmm. with a master who was teaching them how to do that. And I invited the principal in and other teachers to come in because they walked into a classroom where all the students had knives in their hand. And I'm sure some people <laughs> thought, what could go wrong here? <laughs> nothing went wrong because the students knew the reason they were there was to become experts so that they could prepare food because they knew that they were going to be trusted to prepare food for their families, to showcase what they learned. Mm. So we were cooking in, at, in both in the metaphoric sense and the real sense, because it provided a venue to create authenticity for my students in thinking about what it means to learn, in this case, the food science and how they might do that as if just for fun in the kitchen for play. So Mark, I want to just, before we go to break, allow you an opportunity to bring it back to something that you said a little bit earlier, which is the element of student choice. It just I'm getting goosebumps listening to you describe this because it seems like within the construct of the elements of cooking and everything that's associated with it, there's almost an infinite number of exploratory pathways that a kid could go down when they're in something like that, right? Right. And, you know, I think the role of, of a good mentor, right, like, you know, an apprentice and mentor model is if I'm trying to help my students understand how to sew, if I'm trying to understand how to help my students create art, if I'm trying to understand how to help my students evaluate a budget, there are lots of choices you can make, but they also stay within the domain of the field. So I can't just decide to wing off and, yeah. you know, do just anything I want because this maybe isn't a bread baking class. We're working on, you know, things that involve heat and preparation of vegetables or whatever. Yeah. So, so choice is a challenging field for education because it, I, I love the phrase constructivism gone awry, this idea of if we let students do whatever they want, you know, then we'll lose control of at least being able to support them because we can only do it within some boundaries, just like an art teacher or a kumu would do, right? We can create feather lay, but we're not going to do it in a way that falls outside of either the practices of our culture or the boundaries of safety or the needs of the space that we have. Mm -hmm. So choice within there is almost limitless anyhow. So it's there is something to be said for we know the game and we're going to play within the field, but within that, there's so much creativity we can have. We can give students a lot of choice and still feel confident that we'll get 
to the end that will win the game because they'll play within the rules that have been established to do this work. Mm. That's awesome, Mark. So, hey everyone, stay with us. We'll be back in a minute with a few more questions for Dr. Mark Hines. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. As a What School Could Be podcast listener, I know you're curious about what's happening in Hawaii schools. This is Christy Oda, and together with National Board Certified Teachers, we launched Educators Edge, a new podcast that gathers innovative educators with diverse perspectives to collaborate around a topic of their choice. There's something so special about hearing teachers talk story about the work they do to transform education for Hawaii's young learners. I invite you to listen on Apple, Spotify, Google, or Anchor, or go to bit.ly slash educators edge to subscribe. Aloha and mahalo. Everyone, we are back with Dr. Mark Hines, paddling coach, lover of good wines and great food, and director of Kupuho Academy at Mid-Pacific Institute in Honolulu, Hawaii. So Mark, in that philosophy of education statement that you shared with me, which is exactly a thousand words, I've read it several times because of the nuances of your thinking, which clearly evolved over 40 years in education. And the ideas you expressed to me in those thousand words turned into three questions. Let's call them rapid fire questions again that I want to ask. So number one, you wrote culture eats strategy for breakfast. What did you mean? Ah, it's a great quote. And it came from Kelvin Takeda, who is at Hawaii Community Foundation at, I think, our first or second Schools of the Future conference. He mentioned this. And ultimately, we can have all of the best curriculum. I'm going to use this in an education context. We can have all the best ideas about what curriculum looks like in the world. But if our culture, if the way in which we presence ourselves, how we build community in our school, with our faculty, with our administration, with our students, with our families. If that runs against the what the learning we want to do, then our classrooms will be devoid of any joy. They'll be mm-hmm. devoid of any passion. And, and the context that we're going to learn in is going to be stressful and meaningless. So, in the way that that phrase plays out in schools is if we have a joyful place of learning for faculty, for administration, for staff, for the families, for the students, 
then the learning is going to happen easily because then we will want to be there. And there's nothing more powerful to support learning than wanting to show up and do it, right? That's the coaching experience. My paddlers came to me because they wanted to paddle. Mm. And if students come into my classroom and they want to learn because it's joyful, then the strategy will take care of itself because the culture is right. Mm. So Mark, how is the analogy of a pebble in the pond a great metaphor for instructional design? A quote, by the way, I took from David Merrill, who's an instructional designer and in my work for my, my advanced degrees with the University of Hawaii in the LTech department, quick LTech shout out, wonderful faculty. Mm-hmm. The idea that when we create any kind of situation, but here I'm thinking about learning again, right? When we think about we're going to make big changes, but in truth, those are those take care of themselves. It's the small things we start. When we drop a pebble in a pond, it creates a ripple and that ripple goes out and goes out quite a ways. And in all of our work that we do as teachers, sometimes we might ask ourselves, is the work I'm doing really making a difference? I'm just one of many adults that are going to interact with this child over their span of their life. So what's my role here? And the idea of being a pebble in the pond for me, the metaphor for that is all of those ripples that we create in the lives of the students we see, when other pebbles are put in, they also create ripples and those become additive. And so is my one influence the only one that they'll have? No. Does it matter? It does in every day that I bring my honest self to my work and I create that ripple that might have something that the students will later draw on and think that was a moment where I learned something about myself, or that's a moment where I really got excited about learning, or that's a moment where I thought of myself as a mathematician, and that was a great feeling. Those are the ripples that we create when we drop the pebbles in the pond, our, our moments of creating opportunities for students to learn and engage and to feel productive as, as members of our society. Mm. And so finally, what did you mean, Mark, when you wrote knowledge construction is transactional? One of the things that came out of my my work with the dissertation that I was doing was really trying to understand for teachers, how do they build their professionalism in their work? But it also can be centered on the classroom experience and what students do. And when we exchange ideas with people. There's this wonderful research article by uh, Scardamalia that talks about there are these transactional things that happen that are indicators and, and powerful movers of knowledge building. It's when people exchange ideas, when they build on each other's ideas, when they counterpoint someone's idea, when they summarize an idea, when they put it into context. These things happen as transactions. They happen between One of the early folks in the Schools of the Future movement that we had a chance to talk to was Rob Reardon, Mm -hmm. who had the lovely title, my favorite title of all time, The Emperor of Rigor (laughs) at High Tech High. (laughs) Love this idea. And Rob, like the first time I met him, made the point that learning is dialogical. This idea that and unless we have a chance to express it, and it doesn't have to be oral, it could be written, it could be through video or vlogging. There's a lot of ways that we might exchange, but it's in the 
stating, restating in the transaction of trying to express it in a, into someone else, whether it's a peer, an expert, someone who's a mentor, or maybe someone who's an apprentice. I mean, it's not surprising. The reason teachers get so good at their craft is they spend all day talking about their discipline with their students. That's a dialogic process. My physics teaching became so much better five years into my teaching just because every day I was talking about it with my students. Mm -hmm. And I understood it better because I saw through many lenses of my interactions with my students. Mm -hmm. So the idea that knowledge is transactional is critical because in schools, we provide a venue for learners to talk to each other. And yet, if you talk to most traditional schools and students that have been through them, they will say most of their day is passive. They listen to an adult talk. And that's a wasted opportunity because the real power hmm. is when students are talking, sharing, agreeing, laughing, building, grappling, testing and failing. Those are things that they're doing in a community and the community is where the knowledge is really being built. Mm. Wow, that just gives me goosebumps, Mark, to hear you describe me too. what that means. Good, <laughs> good. So look, we have, we have enough time for a couple more questions. So Mark, I, I briefly want to wade into the weeds and thickets of David Epstein's ideas about generalists versus specialists and Malcolm Gladwell's citing of the so-called 10,000 hours. So a quick preamble for our listeners. Epstein's research concludes that in most fields, generalists excel over specialists. Generalists are more agile, make better connections, and are more creative than those who specialize early. Gladwell cites a study that concludes that to achieve mastery of complex skills and knowledge, one has to spend at least 10,000 hours of practice. And I, I know that that study has been challenged and there's some interesting nuances to that. But anyway, so Mark, drawing from your 37 years plus as an educator, the majority of those years at one school, which is really remarkable, it's sort of like being, you know, Yastrzemski playing 23 years for the Boston Red Sox, right? Nice shout out for the Red Sox there, my friend. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. You appear <laughs> to be a specialist with more than 10,000 hours of pedagogical practice under your belt. But I see you as an epic generalist whose success has come because you juggle many interests. So what say you, Mark, about being a generalist versus a specialist, about the hours needed to master teaching? What a great, great question. So first of all, I think I was a very slow learner. And in, by that, I mean, it took me, I think, maybe eight or nine years of teaching before I really started to feel comfortable in my own skin in a classroom. You know, that sort of automated, like I could read it, I could feel it. It switched from being about me talking to me listening to instead of creating context for stress for my students, that there were laughter and joy and relationship building. And I'm always impressed when I meet, and I've met so many wonderful young teachers that have just come into our profession in the last five years. And I look at them and I think, God, it's years of teaching. You are so much better 
at reading and understanding their students and designing learning for them than I was for almost 10 years of, of my professional journey. Mm-hmm. And so this 10,000 hour thing, which it was interesting. I was doing some reading recently about that. And the, I can't remember his name, Goldstein or something like that, that did the original research that Gladwell based this on. Mm-hmm. He's even said the 10,000 hours is just a rough mark. What we recognize is if you want to get good at something, you have to keep working at it. And it doesn't end at 10,000 hours. The, the, the levels of moving from novice to expert are never ending. The, the, it's an unending staircase. There is no point in your teaching career where you've, you did it. You're done. You don't have anything more to learn. As there is in any art, right? Any art form or any, any craft, you get better progressively over time. So for teachers in their journey of learning, the question is, what kinds of ways, and the phrase that Gladwell used, which Epstein agrees with, by the way, is this idea of deliberate practice, mm-hmm. that when we're doing our, whatever it is that we want to learn to do well, we have to do it in a way in which we're allowing ourselves to test our ideas of how it works, finding the boundaries and pushing them out further, right? We're not just, it's, it's like a good workout, right? If I go into a weight room and I just take the weights that are easy and I don't work up a sweat and I don't get my muscles to stretch, I won't get any stronger. And in in the same way, deliberate practice implies that we need to have opportunities to push ourselves where we create, you know, we try things in our teaching practice that push us outside of our comfort zone a little, that try new practices. And I think that's what made me a better teacher is reading and watching other teachers and going to workshops and conferences to see what other people are doing so I could try to do those things in my classroom and add another layer to my tool belt of instructional practices and assessment practices that I was using. Mm. So this idea of being a generalist implies you're not just focused on one thing. Like you could say, well, you were trying to be a good teacher, but being a teacher is a thousand things. It's being a relationship builder. It's making a connection to the real world. It's talking to families. It's understanding my content deeply. It's looking at the means by which I assess learning. It's by becoming better at listening to my students. So I would say teachers are some of the most rangy people I know because Mm -hmm. they have to do so many things in order to build a culture of learning in their class in which their students are all of them, not just not the ones that sit in the front row that raise their hands. All of those kids feel heard, feel that the class is for them, feel that there's opportunity for them to be successful and to walk out of that, that experience with that teacher so that there's something they took away that made them engaged. So the idea that you want to become a generalist implies not trying to do everything in all fields, but you can make the connections around what that looks like. And and I'll paint one last example for you of that. And this is probably, I'm sorry, too long an answer. Mm -hmm. One of the best work that we found in our own school, and I see this in other schools, is when a teacher brings a problem of practice to colleagues, we do a lot of these things in our work. And they say, I'm, I'm struggling with this thing. Like I, you know, some students are getting it, some aren't, or trying to design this lesson to be more interactive or whatever. The most productive conversations come when they're from different disciplines. So instead of a science teacher just talking to science teachers, bring in a language arts teacher, bring mm-hmm. in an art teacher. And then when they're from different grade levels, if I'm a high school teacher, have an elementary teacher take a look at my work. That's a very rangy way to go about it, right? Because I'm broadening my generalist field because different disciplines 
different teachers with different experiences will open up a range of possibilities for me to explore in my professional work. Mm. And so that, I think, in education is the way range can play out is that one-room schoolhouse, right? Mm -hmm. That we can all see each other's work and collectively work towards one common goal, which is making better citizens and, and, and young people who are going to engage the world in productive and powerful ways be happy and joyful in their lives. And so we create a ranging teacher by more ways for them to see their profession. Mm. You know, Mark, I'm going to connect what you just said back to another episode that I did with Dr. Tammy Jones. And we spent the mm. majority of the beginning of that episode talking about teacher efficacy. And, and you know, I, my thought in this moment is that if I, as a teacher, follow the pathway that you just outlined in the last couple of minutes, the evidence of my success is going to be there in front of me every day, all day long, not at a, you know, at a midterm test or not at a final exam or not at a paper that comes once a quarter or something like that. It's there every day, all day, right in front of you. That's what efficacy is all about, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, let's go back to the coaching metaphor, right? Yeah. How do I create efficacious paddlers? I do that by giving them experience, by giving them feedback, by having them understand how and what things they did that were successful by having them reflect. So like when I'm a coach, I, at the end of a practice and at the end of a race, will take time and say, reflect on what just happened. What did you learn about yourself today that will make you better tomorrow? Yeah. So efficacious people take time to look at their experiences and to reflect on them, to yeah. talk to someone about them, to use them as additives and also like this didn't work. So I won't do that route again, or that should work. I'll have to try it a different way. So that idea of having an environment where we encourage people to experiment, right? You think about classroom and, and for that matter, teacher evaluation, teachers are gauged by doing things right. And if we focus so much about that, yeah. that teachers won't try new things because they feel they'll get reprimanded or they'll get in trouble for trying something. If the culture of the school is don't make any mistakes or you're going to get fired. I mean, I'm not saying we're going out. Again, we're playing within the field of the game, right? So we don't do things that are, you know, that either impose safety issues or anything like that. But right. within the bounds of pedagogy and assessment, we should encourage schools that allow teachers to experiment crazy all the time because in that there's opportunities to become more efficacious because you are able to look at what works and knowing what works builds out what you can do in every contextual moment because learners change every day. Every kid in your class is different. So you need to have this feeling that I have the tools in my belt. That's what efficacious people do, right? Sorry, yeah. that's three times I said that word. But that's what people who have self-actualized realize is I have enough experience. I've tried enough things that for this kid, I have a better sense of what's going to work for them. Yeah, Because every kid in my class has a need that I, if I'm really a good craftsperson in my field, I can probably pull out something that will work for them. And if mm -hmm. not, then I sit down with them and say, this isn't working. Where do we go with you? Yeah. And we start with that then. So Mark, uh, we have time for just one more question. I want to kind of bring it full circle back to you. You told me a story about as a young college graduate four decades ago, um, sitting at a kitchen table, having a coffee with your best friend's father, 
who raised the idea of you becoming a teacher. At the time, mm. you dismissed the thought, but then the story takes a wonderful turn. So what was that turn? And what is your shout out to Dick Smith for his part in the story? I'm so glad that you you mentioned this. You know, life is is not linear. It's a lesson for all of us. It's it's constantly shaped by our experiences and the opportunities that we either take advantage of or we don't, the doors that open and we walk through. And after I finished my undergraduate degree in physics, I was thinking I wanted to do research in semiconductors. And then the proposition of, have you thought about teaching? And I said, no, and I don't have any interest in it. And he said, well, at least try to make some, because it's the summer and you're still looking for a job and you can make some money this fall. So his brother was a superintendent, so I became a substitute teacher. And within a week of working with high school students, I remember I was in for three days to cover for a chemistry teacher, and we were doing bonding and doing the shells, PS, shells of, of, of atomic structure. And the students looked at me, and they're like, hey, wait a minute, you're like a sub-teacher, but you know this stuff. Mm. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, tell us more. And they leaned in, and I thought, oh, my gosh. Mm. I love this. Here's <laughs> like my passion around science was all of a sudden trumped by my love of knowing I could make a difference in these kids' lives by giving them a reason and a, and a way that they thought of themselves as wanting to learn. Mm. And it it happened rather quickly. And one last story with that, and I know we're out of time, but I remember talking to my mother shortly after that, and I said. Uh, you know, I think I, I think I'm meant to be a teacher, but there's no jobs for teachers. This was kind of like a downturn in the economy. Like now, this is 1982, and she said, "Son, if you're good at what you do and you love it, there'll always be someone that wants you to work with them." Mm. And my goodness, was she ever right about that? I think for all of us, when we believe in ourselves and what we're doing, and we're connected to our work in a way that's purposeful and meaningful, and we love what we do, then we will find a way. Or, or maybe, you know, the, the gods above will find a way to help us to that place where we are doing the thing that we're meant to do because it aligns with our beliefs and values. Mm, that's awesome, Mark. So, Dr. Mark Hines, please stay safe and in good health. Please keep coaching our public, independent, and charter school educators towards deeper learning. And thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. In the best way, this has been a joyful experience, and that's truly what makes it a great day today. Thank you. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurahara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all the major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. This series is sponsored by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed, and author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. 
please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Follow us on Twitter at WSCB Podcast or at Josh Rapoon. Friends, even as COVID infection numbers decline, stay safe and please get vaccinated. Most of all, bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care. <laughs>